Welcome to No Compromise, where faith and reason fuse in conversation. Jenny and I continue our discussion of the conclusion to G.K. Chesterton's The Everlasting Man. Okay, so let's move on. He summarizes then what he expressed in the first few chapters, the ones that you and I already discussed. He says, In the land lit by that neighboring star whose blaze is the broad daylight, there are many and very various things, motionless and moving. There moves among them a race that is in its relation to the others, a race of gods. And that's what we were just saying. Yes. The fact is not lessened but emphasized because it can behave like a race of demons. <laughs> That's yes. for sure, as we have seen of late in the attack on Israel. Yes. And then he goes on later to say, even in the sense in which man is at one with the universe, it is an utterly lonely universality. The very sense that he is united with all things is enough to sunder him from all. Yes. And it is worth our understanding at mm -hmm. this point that what Chesterton is talking about here yeah. already is essentially the first part of this book. Right, right, This right. book is divided into two parts. Part one, on the creature called man. Mm -hmm. And what is radically different about the nature of man from the rest of the natural exactly. world. So this is part of that outline that he is okay. drawing. Right, 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 right. So he's now beginning to paint the world in the most simplistic outline that he can. Right. And he's saying, that that world possesses an individual type of being mm -hmm. that is different from everything else right. in the natural world. Exactly. That individual is well, man. Yeah, he, and he goes on to show that the uniqueness of man allows him to realize God. Yes. Okay, well, let me read what he says here. He says it so much better than I could. He says, But so long as the race of thinkers was able to think, it was obvious that the admission of this idea of a plan brought with it another thought more thrilling and even terrible. There was someone else, some strange and unseen being, who had designed these things. If indeed they were designed, there was a stranger who was also a friend, a mysterious benefactor who had been before them and built up the woods and hills for their coming, and had kindled the sunrise against their rising as the servant kindles a fire. Reminds me of Pip. In Charles Dickens' story, Great Expectations, Great Expectations. he had that benefactor, and he yes. didn't know who it was who made him fancy and rich. Yes. Anyway, okay. And then he goes on to say later, but I am concerned here with keeping the story in its most simple and even concrete terms. And it is enough to say here that most men, including the wisest men, have come to the conclusion that the world has such a final purpose and therefore such a first cause. But most men in some sense separated themselves from the wisest men. And when it came to the treatment of that idea, and there came into existence two ways of treating that idea, which between them make up most of the religious history of the world. Okay, but before we get to the two different ways, uh -huh. we can talk about the sort of common ground okay, that's that good. underlies both of them that Chesterton makes clear here. Yeah. For he says, looking around him by this unique light, this demigod or demon of the visible world makes that world visible. Yeah. That is different from all the rest of the natural world, including the conscious animals at whatever level they are conscious, is a human 
being that makes a world exist. Right. There is no world for animals. The animals do not have a world. They have experience. Yeah, yeah. Human beings have a world. Right. That is, they unify their experience into a notion of reality as a whole. And that is radically different from the rest of the natural world. Mm -hmm. He sees around him a world of a certain style or type, he says. Mm -hmm. It seems to proceed by certain rules or at least repetitions. And of course, what Chesterton is developing here is the idea that human rationality is different and not just a little different, radically different right. from any other creature right. or being in the world in which we live. He sees a green architecture that builds itself without visible hands, mm -hmm. but which builds itself into a very exact plan or pattern. Right. Like a design already drawn in the air by an invisible finger. Mm -hmm. This is what we've talked about in our series on the evidence, evidence and faith. faith. Mm -hmm. The human being looking around the world sees a rational plan inherent in that world, right. rightly or wrongly. Chesterton says. Mm -hmm. That's what they see. Mm -hmm. It is not, he says, as is now vaguely suggested, a vague thing. It is not a growth or a groping of blind life. Each seeks an end. Right. An acorn becomes an oak. The seed mm. of a dandelion becomes a dandelion. Right. It's not vague. Mm -hmm. It's very specific. Right. It's highly outlined. It is not a growth or a groping mm -hmm. of blind life. Each seeks an end, a glorious and radiant end. In the very shape of things, there is more than green growth. There is the finality of the flower. Yeah. It is a world of crowns. And I love what he says next. This impression, whether or no it be an illusion, so this is a metaphysical question, right. has so profoundly influenced this race of thinkers, that is, these rational beings that we call human beings, mm -hmm. that are radically separated from all the rest of the animals who do not think like this, and masters of the material world, that the vast majority, that is, almost everyone in the human race, have been moved to take a certain view of that world. Right. And that world is only evident to them. The animals do not have a world. They have experience, but they don't have a world. Right. Because the world is the bringing together into a unity of our experience. Animals don't have that. Right. These human beings have concluded, rightly or wrongly, he says, that the world has a plan, as the tree seemed to have a plan, and an end and crown like the flower. But so long as the race of thinkers was able to think, it was obvious that the admission of this idea of a plan brought with it another and more thrilling and even terrible. There was someone else. 
some strange and unseen being. Uh, yeah, that's the part I had read earlier. Yep. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. Who had designed these things. Right. And this is what we see in Paradise Lost. Yeah. Adam wakes up after the creation, and he looks around, and he sees, wow. All of this has been designed, and it's good for me, and therefore, there must have been a designer. Mm -hmm. And this, for me, was crystallized in my own search for God after going to atheism, in the philosophy of Jean-Paul Sartre, right. who told me that inherent in the consciousness of man was this being that we call God. Yeah. And I think he's absolutely right on this. And the Apostle Paul echoes it in Romans 1 when he says, we are without excuse. Right. The world that we've been given and the consciousness that we've been given as created human beings leads us to an acknowledgement of a creator mm -hmm. who is greater than us. Right, right, right. And then Chesterton says, now this idea of a mind that gives a meaning to the universe. And remember, what we're painting here is the history of man, of man, the outline of history. And in a lot of ways, this is not open to speculation. This is what human being has, in fact, been. Mm -hmm. Right. This is the history of humanity. Right. This idea of a mind that gives a meaning to the universe has received more and more confirmation within the minds of men. Mm-hmm by meditations and experiences much more subtle and searching than any such argument about the external plan of the world. Yeah. In other words, this is evident, not only in the natural world, as the Psalms and Romans 1 tells us, but in the very mind, the very consciousness of humanity. And Chesterton says, and it is enough here to say that most men, including the wisest men, mm -hmm have come to the conclusion that the world has such a final purpose and therefore such a first cause. Right. That's what, that's what the reality right. is. That's what it's all about. In history. Mm -hmm. Whether it's right or wrong, that's what men have concluded. Right. But then he says there are two ways right. of treating that idea. Yeah, he goes on to divide the two ways into majority and the minority. Right. Yeah. And of the majority, he says, the majority, like the minority, had this strong sense of a second meaning in things, of a strange master who knew the secret of the world. But the majority, the mob or mass of men, naturally tended to treat it rather in the spirit of gossip. The gossip, like all gossip, contained a great deal of truth and falsehood. And then he goes on later to say they are mythology or the poetry that is not bound in the books right? or bound in any other way. So the world began to tell itself tales, mm -hmm. he said. Right. Many of them are probably true tales. Mm -hmm. Enough of them are probably true to keep a person of real common sense more or less conscious that there really is something right. rather marvelous behind the cosmic curtain. Mm -hmm. It is a matter of appearances. That is, all human beings have this sense. How we explain it is another issue. Right. But that we have this sense is a matter of history. At the most, these gods, that is the gods of mythology, are ghosts. Yeah. 
They are glimpses. The Christian atheist says that all man's thoughts indicate the transcendent, right. approach it, seek it, etc. The great majority are told it is not for the sake of the tale, at least for the sake of the topic. They are evidence of the eternal interest in the theme. That yeah. is, it is the yeah. nature of man to find this interesting, fascinating, and something to pursue. They are, as you said, mythology. Mm-hmm. And then we move on to the second class. Yeah, and that's the minority. He says, meanwhile, the minority, the sages or thinkers, had withdrawn apart and had taken up in an equally congenial trade. They were drawing up plans of the world, of the world which all believed to have a plan. They were trying to set forth the plan seriously and to scale. They were setting their minds directly to the mind that had made the mysterious world, considering what sort of a mind it might be and what its ultimate purpose might be. And then he says later, they have tried to put on paper, This is I like this, they have tried to put on paper a possible plan of the world, almost as if the world were not yet made. Mm-hmm. Yep. So these are the class mm-hmm. of the sages or the philosophers. Yeah. And again, if we're looking at the outline of history, we see this class of people in every age, every culture, everywhere. Yeah. And they are trying to understand the mind of God. Yeah. Just as the mythologists were. So there are two basic divisions of humanity, but they're all trying to unravel the basic understanding that is the mind of man encountering the world and understanding it as revealing something greater, something beyond the veil of this world. Okay, so Chesterton has set up here the notion that there are two divisions. Mm -hmm. There is the mythology, and there are essentially what boils down to the philosophers. Mm -hmm. But there are divisions within each case, right? There are different sorts of mythology, and there are different sorts of philosophers. And it's worthwhile spending a few seconds talking about what the divisions of the philosophers are. Yeah. Because he says they all had an idea to set forth the same notion that there is a rationality to the world that they want to understand. Yeah. They were trying to set forth the plan, reading reading Chesterton here, yeah, seriously and to scale, as you said. They were setting their minds directly to the mind, that is God's mind, mm-hmm. that had made the mysterious world, considering what sort of a mind it might be right. and what its ultimate purpose might be. So remember, we're setting out the history of man here mm-hmm. in broad outline. Some of them, that is, the philosophers, made that mind, the mind of God, more impersonal than mankind has generally made it. Some simplified it almost to a blank. That is, that there is no almost rational, personal reality to it. It's an impersonal force. This is Hegel. A few, he says, A very few. And we often forget this in today's world because today's world is in many ways dominated by the atheistic worldview. A few, a very few, doubted it 
all together. Yeah. They are truly the minority Mm -hmm. of mankind. Yeah. And I mean the ever shrinking minority of mankind. Humanity does not subscribe to atheism. Right. Broadly speaking. Right. There are very few that get there. So here we arrive in the 20th century Mm -hmm. at the modern dialectical materialist, the scientific materialist, at the new atheists. They are the vast minority of humankind. And yet they have become, in many ways, the intellectual elite in our day. Yeah, or the uh, loudmouths. The loudmouths who carry the day because they're so loud. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One or two, he says, of the more morbid fancied that it might be evil and an enemy. And this is the Gnosticism Mm -hmm. that is also taking over and joining force with With the the rationalists of today, the evil genie of Descartes. And then he says, just one or two of the more degraded in the other class worship demons instead of gods. Yeah. But, and here we go again, to the broad outline of history, most of these theorists, that is, most of the wisest of mankind, were theists in some way or other. They believed in God. They believed in some reality, some transcendent reality beyond this world. And they saw not only a moral plan in nature, but they generally laid down a moral plan for humanity. Right, right. And, he says, of all of these people, men never really forgot that these theorists, Plato, Aristotle, Confucius, Buddha, Mm -hmm. they never forgot that they were men. Right. In Asia, where the atmosphere was more mythological, the man was made to look more like a myth, but he remained a man. He remained a man of a certain special class or school of men, receiving and deserving great honor from mankind. But he was always still a man. Right. And as a class, these philosophers, these sages, he said, have tried, in a sense, to project the primary purpose of that mind, that transcendent mind, a priori. That is, that there was a rational plan before the world came into existence. And then where we go next is, in many ways, just the explosion That is the second part of the book where Chesterton wants to make the case that Christianity was the unexpected. It was a miracle on the background of this amazing thing that we call human history that was so separated from the natural world that something else happened that was just as amazing. In fact, in many ways, more amazing, more miraculous on the background of that human structure. Right. And so this, in many ways, would be starting with paragraph seven of this conclusion. Where he shows the exception to these two. Yes. And he says it's an enormous exception. He says, right in the middle of all these things stands up an enormous exception. It is quite unlike anything else. It is a thing final like the trump of doom, though it is also a piece of good news or news that seems too good to be true. 
It is nothing less than the loud assertion that this mysterious maker of the world has visited this world in person. It declares that really, and even recently, or right in the middle of historic times, there did walk into the world this original invisible being about whom the thinkers make theories and the mythologists hand down myths, the man who made the world. And then later he says, it would be easy to concentrate on it as a case of isolated insanity, but it makes nothing but dust and nonsense of comparative religion. Yes. So this corresponds to the second part of the book on the man called Christ. Right. And again, what the point is of Chesterton here is we've got to stop rubbing out the lines. Yeah, yeah. We've got to stop saying that everything blends into everything else. That's an Hegelian point. Yeah. The point is that everything doesn't right, blend in right. to everything else. That there are radical differences to be made. Mm -hmm. And he starts out this section, just as you just read, right in the middle of all these things of human history, there stands up an enormous exception. Yeah. And we are constantly told by the world today yeah. to forget this uniqueness. They mm -hmm. want to tell us by the discipline of comparative religion that Jesus was like the other dying gods. No, Jesus was not a god. Right. He was not like Zeus, who was one amongst a series of other gods. Jesus claimed to be the right. God. The way. Yeah. The way, the truth, and the life. The creator of all. Mm -hmm. That final mystery that stands beyond all the veil that humankind has constantly presented itself right. with in this world. And that the philosophers have tried to explain. That the mythologists are all pointing to. And we forget how unique that claim is. Yeah. And Chesterton makes this point. None of the people in human history, the mythologists or the philosophers, make the claims that Jesus yeah. made. Yeah. It's not that he was a God who died. It was that he was the one and only God, yeah. the creator of the universe, the sustainer of everything that died. Right. And that he visited this world, not like Zeus came down and played the part of something else in yeah. the world and deceived others. No, he came down and interacted in the history, the right. actual history of humanity. Not as a myth, but as a reality. Right, right, right. And then died as a reality in order to redeem the world. There is nothing else like that. Right. And anyway. all of my life in academia, I've been told through comparative religion to look at Jesus as just one of another type. Right. No, he's not one of another type. And that's Chesterton's point in this section. He is utterly unique. Right, right. The lightning strikes across the sky and nothing else compares mm -hmm, to mm -hmm. the reality of Jesus. That God himself 
came into this world, into the history, and became part of his creation in order to redeem his creation. Nothing of this sort had ever been implied, Chesterton says, in anything else. Or any other religion or... Yes. It is simply false to say that the other sages and heroes had claimed to be that mysterious master and maker of whom the world had dreamed and disputed. Mm -hmm. Not one of them had ever claimed to be anything of the sort. And our world is constantly trying to rub out that line. And he says, that is something utterly unlike anything else in nature. Jesus claimed to be the God of creation, the one true God. And Chesterton says it is the one great startling statement that man has made since he spoke his first articulate word. Its unique character can be used as an argument against it as well as for it. It would be easy to concentrate on it as a case of isolated insanity, but it makes nothing but dust, as you said, and nonsense of comparative religion. There is no other claim anywhere in the history of man. And remember, what we're drawing here in this conclusion, what we're drawing in this book is the outline of history. Right. And there's nothing else that comes anywhere Close. in the remote vicinity. Right. So much for blurring the lines. <laughs> I am a Christian with the searching and skeptical mind of an atheist. I don't want to believe anything that isn't true. I know both sides of the looking glass and I know them with open eyes. I choose Christ's side. I invite you to join me from wherever you stand before the looking glass. That's this week's episode. Thanks for listening. And remember, you can have your religious cake and eat it too. You can have reason, respect for science, a 21st century worldview, and be a Christian.